Well, good morning, everyone. You know, this week, um, as I was preparing, my husband has given me a lot of really good advice for this sermon. He told me that I should just get up here and be myself, basically undoing everything he's told me for the last 15 years. (laughs) And so I'm a little confused with the message, but it is true that we have been talking about me speaking for many years. Um, Usually the conversation would go, do you think that you should speak at church this week? And I'd say, no. And, you know, I really feel like God wants you to speak in this series. Do you think you should do that? And I said, no. And I didn't feel bad about it at all. Honestly, I didn't feel bad. It It felt natural to tell my husband no. And so, but there was a slight shift that started to take place. And it went from my husband asking me to speak to God asking me to speak. And this gets a little bit trickier. Um, Not as easy to say no. We're still capable to do it. But I started to feel inside that this was eventually going to happen. And one thing, if you don't know about me, is I love sleep. I love naps. I don't understand people that don't like naps. It makes me question a lot about them. And so... (laughs) But I don't get a ton of sleep. So when it happens, I really want to enjoy every second of it. And God started to wake me up in the middle of the night. And he would show me myself speaking. He would give me words that I would speak. And I would like to say I was happy about it, but I wasn't really happy about it. I was like, God, you know I love sleep. You know I don't want to speak. Why are you doing this? And it was pretty clear that's why he was doing it. And he started to teach me two things during this process. And the first thing is that there really is never a good time for you to do something that God asks you when you don't want to do it. No matter what you actually, if you could do it, you will find a reason to not do it. God will ask. It will never come about that there's the right moment for you to do that. And and it wasn't that I didn't have a lot of excuses. I I explained to God, I work full-time. I help at the church. I have two kids. I have friends. I have family. I have a husband, a pretty high-maintenance husband, does a lot of online shopping. I mean, I have to support all these things that he needs, and it's a lot of stress, and God understood, and he did understand that, that last one especially. He said, I see, and that's why he's given me about five years to get to this point. But the other thing, and this was a much harder thing for me to receive and process, is that disobedience is not only when God tells you not to, to do something and you do it. It's also when he tells you to do something and you don't do it. So, you know, growing up we learned do not steal, do not lie, you know, don't hit your little brother, you know, don't cheat at school. And then when we do lie or, you know, we do one of those things, we're like, oh, I understand. We, they were told not to do it and we did it. That's an easy consequence. But with God, it's also what he has said to us when he speaks to us to do something and we don't do it. That's also disobedience. And in James 4, just so that we can be perfectly clear about this, in verse 17, God lays it out like this. It says, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Pretty clear. If we know the right thing to do, if God speaks to us and asks us to do something and we don't do it, he deems that sin. He deems that disobedience to what he has said. And so he's not just speaking to us for us to think about these suggestions, to think about things, to ponder. And so last month, um, the one morning I wasn't feeling really well uh, physically. And then I also just sort of was defeated about some things that we were going through. And so I stayed home from church that morning. 
And about midway through um, the first service, I got a text message from a friend of ours who was on vacation with their family at the beach. And it was just very simply that God asked me to send this song to you to listen to. And so I started to play the song and immediately as the words hit my ears, it was like God undid my whole heart. And it was exactly what I needed to hear in that moment. And I don't know about any of you, but when I find a worship song that I really like, I just play it over and over and over and over again until I basically can never hear the song again. But so that's basically what I did with this song. And I played it. And in that moment, as I just kept playing and playing, God gave me the the notes for this message. And I just wrote them all out. And it was so easy. It just came forward. And so I knew in that moment, the time to tell God, no, I don't want to speak anymore. It was gone, and now I needed to bring this forth in this position series that it really was the time that God was saying, I need you to help refocus yourself and refocus the church and our main thing, to bring honor and glory to God. Um, That's what we're here to do, and that's what he requires of us. And during that time, he took me to Psalms 78. And in this, the psalmist lays out exactly what he is asking us to do with our time while we're here. And I thought it was interesting, the title of the chapter on my Bible, there's different chapters, um, titles that sort of explain, you know, what is going to happen. And the title in this part was God's guidance of his people in spite of their unfaithfulness. God's guidance of his people in spite of their unfaithfulness. And I think it's pretty safe to say, if we look at the body of Christ as a whole, that we've been unfaithful to the commands of God and the things that he has asked of us to do. You know, we've laid out plans of man and we've stamped them and said that they were plans of God. We've built ministries that really were dedicated to honor a person and not to honor God. And we have limited his power by the programs that we have required to make us feel comfortable in the processes that we like. And in Psalm 78, the psalmist basically, basically gives us a very simple guide of what we are to be doing while we are here. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn. If not, we'll put them up on the TV Bibles. Um, And we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 8. In verse 1, it begins, Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. And so I'm just going to take a quick pause for us to understand very simply that psalms, these were songs, or they were poems that were meant to be sung. And if we listen to what that psalm is saying, saying, listen up, listen to what I'm saying, incline your ears. And I know that for many of us, this would be a little odd if we came in and Brent started singing out to us, you know, listen to the words that are coming out of my mouth. Listen to what I'm saying. But the reason he's doing this and why the psalmist is laying it out is because he's saying, what I'm about to say is really important. I need you to listen, get all distractions away and focus in on what I'm bringing forward. So we hop into verse two. It says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. Verse five, for he has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children 
that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. The psalmist goes on, if you have time to read the rest of 78, he goes on to explain all the ways that God had been faithful to the people of Israel and all the ways that they had been unfaithful back to him. But he really sets the tone by starting off this psalm by, if we read in verse five, the end of it, we'll read it again. It says that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. So what is he saying? He's saying God has established his kingdom for generations. And we as his followers are continuously to be telling of the good things that God has done to our children so that they will tell their children and the many children that will come. You know, during worship, we sing uh, a song called King of My Heart. And we may have killed that for some of you because we've done it so many times. But there is a line in that song that I love. And it says, let the king of my heart be the fire inside my veins, the echo of my days. And every time we sing that part about the echo of our days, there's something inside of me that shifts and moves. And as I was preparing, God just simply asked me to look up the definition of echo, which I sort of thought I knew what that meant, what an echo meant. And so I did, I looked it up and it means as a verb, it's pretty simple, to be repeated or reverberate after the original sound has stopped. So there's an original sound and then an echo is just that it's repeated or it reverberates off the surfaces, the things around it, after the original sound is no longer going on. And I mentioned earlier that I love to sleep. One thing that you don't know about me also is that I can do a lot of things in my sleep. I can walk in my sleep, I can talk. I've even text real questions to people in my sleep and I actually dream pretty often. And so whenever our son Avishai was a newborn, we sort of had this plan set up. His, his um, crib was still in our room. And so I would do sort of the last late night um, feeding. And then my husband, he's a night owl, he would stay up. Avishai, unlike um, good children, he didn't go into the milk coma that most parents tell you about that they do it and then they fall asleep. It was like it was a recharge. He was ready to go. What are we going to do next? And that really hasn't stopped for his whole life. But so I would leave him up with his dad and I would go to sleep. Well, at this night, I started to have a dream that I was in a cave and I was walking in this cave and it was dark and, and I start to see this light. And so I start going towards the light and I look up and I realize there's people they must be at the top, and so I need help. I need to get out. And so I start yelling hello up to the top of the cave and waiting for someone to help me. And the next thing I know, there I am, and I have this really angry pastor right in my face. And he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm trying to get out of the cave. What are you doing? I'm, I must have made it. I'm back in my bed, I guess. I'm fine. So I was like, he's like, you're going to wake up, Abishai. Go back to sleep. I'm like, oh. Okay, fine. And that's another gift. I pretty much go to sleep like this any place, any time. So I just went back to sleep and went about my night. Um, and so in the morning, we talked about it. And he said, what were you doing last night? I said, well, I had this dream. And I was in this cave. And I was trying to get out. And he said, yeah, I know. 
He said, I came in and you were yelling at the top of your lungs and you're going, hello, 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 hello. And I was like, oh, well, I was like, so it turns out that not only was I yelling for help, hello, but I was also adding the effect of the sound of the cave to have it echo so that people could really hear me. And thankfully, my husband rescued me from that dream and I got out. But it started to make me really think about that original sound, about the sound basically, you know, that is created. And so we think about our life. So the original sound is the things that we do and say, the way we act. And we might wonder, okay, what is the sound that we're really creating? And, you know, a good reflection if you have kids is to maybe watch the things your kids say or the things that your kids do. And we didn't have the benefit of children that didn't speak clearly very early on and often. You know, those kids that come in and, and they're like, blah, 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 and you're, and you're like, what? And their mom's like, oh, they want a drink. And they're like, oh, okay, I don't, how did you tell that? Um, our kids spoke very clear, and um, my son, he already knows how to use the word idiot very in the right context and very clearly. And I really, I don't want to confirm or deny if you ever heard it said about someone in this room, but he does. <laughs> And so it challenges you to really think, like, how do you speak? What are they seeing? And that's sort of the sound that you carry, and that's what your kids start to mimic, and that creates the sound of the next generation that, that um, is there. And last month, we went to a wedding, and throughout the whole weekend, from the rehearsal dinner through every aspect, everybody that got up and spoke, you kept hearing about their grandfather, and they kept saying, he always told us, keep the main thing, the main thing. And it was like, even without him being there, everything he had taught his children, who then taught their children, who are now teaching their children, it just like permeated the entire wedding for them to understand that Jesus needed to be the main thing, no matter what. And it was as if this echo that he had created was now going to transcend beyond all the generations. He was no longer there, but he was so intentional that Jesus had to be the main thing, that you could feel that even after he was there. And I'm sure there's going to be generations to come that won't even really have known him, know who he was, and they're going to repeat that same thing because he was so intentional, because that original sound that he created started to carry on to these other people. And so I started to think about my kids and the kids in our church and the kids in our community and how are we molding them and how are we shaping them. And I'll be honest, it is very hard to find people who want to be a pastor, a children's pastor. They're like a rare unicorn. If you see them in real life, you're not sure that it was real. Maybe if people follow around Bigfoot, it'd be a similar thing. You're not sure, you thought you saw it, but then it's there and it's gone. And I started to think, why? Like, there's so many kids. I see so many people that seem to like to make kids, and yet nobody wants to raise them or, or dedicate their lives to them. And so I started to think on this, and I realized there's a couple of things. Why? And one is because of the culture in ministry. So the way that people are taught that go into ministry the kids, that's your first step. That's the stepping stone. You start at the kids, and then you go to the youth, and then, you know, you keep moving up until you get to the big stage with the, the grown-ups upstairs, and you get to be the lead pastor. And because of that, people don't look at that as, what am I called to do? I'm called to mold this generation, and I love kids, and I, I understand that God wants me to do that. It's like a dismissive thing, like, you know, when are you going to get the real job as the pastor instead of having to play with the kids? 
And the other thing is that Satan has really got the church to buy into a lie that kids are kind of a nuisance. You know, like you have to brush their teeth and comb their hair and get them dressed and you take care of them all week. And then the last thing you want to really do on Sunday is have to come in and teach them. And then not only them, but the other kids. I mean, have you seen the way some people's kids act? Like they pick their nose, they eat it, they wipe it on you. Like, how can I love Jesus when that's happening to me? You know, how can I make them love Jesus? And this sort of starts to get into our minds. And what we start to teach the kids is that church is optional and that loving Jesus is actually for grown-ups. That this is something that, you know, you'll do when you're older. It's okay, you know, when you're a kid and you're a teenager. We know, we know you're going to have sex before you're married. We know you're going to drink and get drunk. And, you know, all we really ask is, like, please, like, try not to get pregnant and try not to get addicted to anything. And that's basically the message that we have given our kids. And when you get older and you're more mature and you're calmed down, you'll come back to church and then you'll understand what it means to love Jesus. But the problem with that is that the statistics don't support that at all. A recent study just came out again basically saying that only one-fourth of people that will ever follow Jesus, that will ever convert to know Jesus, happens after they're 21. So if you have not met and fell in love with Jesus and are serving him. By the time you're 21, your chances go down to one in four. And so to sort of put that into context, if I would just ask for four volunteers, and we're just gonna set up a little fun game out on Bald Eagle Avenue, and we're gonna have a Mack truck, and we're gonna let it go as fast as it can, we'll give it some time to you know, rev up, and we're gonna put four of you, and I'm gonna ask you to run across the road in front of the Mack truck. But the thing is, only one of you is actually going to get across. The other three of you are going to get totally smeared by the Mack truck, and you're going to go to meet your maker right now. So could I have some volunteers for my object lesson? Still just mad. He's pretty confident he's the one in four. Yeah. And I appreciate that confidence. Yeah. But when we think about that, that's kind of a disturbing thought. And we don't really start to treat following Jesus like life or death. We sort of let Satan have his way with the way this generation is shaped and molded because the thing is is that Satan isn't like us. He's not lazy. He doesn't take breaks. He doesn't want to lose. He takes every moment that he can to try to form the next generation to follow him. He realizes that every second that we're not intentional to tell this generation about Jesus that he's gonna take it and we basically forfeit it over to him. And say, you know, I'm kinda tired. You go ahead and you tell them what you think they need to know about the world. And because of this, kids are falling away. They don't know the truth. They can't recognize it, so they definitely don't understand when they're being told a lie. And Satan understands the things that echo through time. That's why he's so intentional with music. That's why he is so intentional to pull people towards music that's away from worshiping God. Instead, it builds a culture of worshiping man and celebrity and all the things that that brings. And because of it, too, we've reduced salvation to the smallest bit of effort. It's just a simple prayer. If you just say this prayer, then you'll get into heaven. And people start to think that they can just say the prayer and live their life any way they want, not realizing that God sees every part of our heart, that he recognizes if this prayer was just said to try to get your ticket into heaven and not because you've accepted him and you love him. And so we need to be intentional with the generations to tell them what God requires. 
What is the standard of obedience and surrender that God wants from us? And when you look at the story of Joshua in the Bible, Joshua understood the requirement that God had laid out before him. When you think about Joshua, most times you'll think of the scripture that do not be, a, do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous for your Lord, your God is with you. And why is that? Because Joshua molded and made his life to show that God can do anything when you surrender to him, that he will not leave you if you are with him. And from an early age, Joshua was taught of the promises that were given to Abraham. He knew that Abraham was promised land that was just for the people of Israel. And for many reasons, they were no longer on that land, but there was gonna come a time that they would go back. And because that gener- that promise had been passed down from generation to generation to generation, there came a time where Moses, told by God, was to lead the people out of Egypt back to that land. And Moses and the people, they got to the threshold of that promise, but their mindset was a little bit different than Joshua's. Their mindset was whether they should go in if we should go in. Let's go see what's happening in in that, that promised land we've been told and decide if we should do it. And Joshua's mindset was, how are we going to go in? How are we going to do what God has asked us to do? And because of that, the people were disobedient. They didn't go in and take the land. And they spent 40 years circling around the desert. And Joshua, even though he was ready and willing, he had to circle the desert with those people, waiting for an entire generation to pass away. But during that time, Joshua was faithful and he saw all the things that God did, even in that place where they just wandered. And it brought him in Joshua 4 to a place where now they're back at the same place they were 40 years ago, ready to cross the Jordan River, ready to take the promise that was given to them. And Joshua understood that this was not a moment that was to be forgotten. He understood that this needed to transcend all of time that the same promise he was told about the land being theirs was also the same thing that needed to be passed on to the generations to come. And in Joshua 4, we're going to read verses 6 and, six and 7. Joshua lays out exactly why this is so important. He had told the people, the, the leaders of the tribes, to get stones from the dry part of the Jordan River. See, God had moved the water out of the way so they could walk across on dry land. And he told them, get a stone, don't let it get washed over with the water again so that we forget. And we're gonna each take one of these stones and we're gonna build an altar. And this is why. He says, let this be a sign among you so that when your children ask later, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. These stones, when you see them, they will say, and they will create an echo through all generations, that this is a great work that God had done. That these stones will say that God made a way where there was no way. We couldn't cross into the promised land without God doing something. And when your children see these stones, they will be reminded from generation to generation that God made us able to walk on the dry land and enter our promise. And he repeats, Joshua 4 at the end, Joshua reminds the people again in verse 21, he says, He said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed. 
just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed. Then all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. He's saying, when your children ask, when your children see, Joshua wasn't just repeating himself for repeating self's sake. This wasn't like me talking to my husband, asking him a question. He gives me an answer. I give him another chance. I ask the same question again. And he says, didn't we talk about this before? And you would think after this time, this would be a cue if I'm asking again that he should modify his answer and think of something different to say. And um, I hate to say that it's not that quick yet, but I think we're going to get there eventually. But that's not what Joshua was doing. He wasn't trying to lay it out again to say, I'm going to say something different. He was reiterating how important this was, that when your children see these stones, they'll remember what God has done. Like the psalmist says, we are to tell of the good works that God has done. So they, our children and the generations to come know of all the great works that he's done. Because why? And the last line of that scripture says, so that they will fear the Lord your God forever. And, you know, and today in, in life, in church, I feel that we've really replaced the fear of God with the fear of man. We care much more about what people will say and do based on what God has asked us to do than what God actually asked us to do. We start thinking about the outcome. You know, you're at the, the store and you see someone and God says, I want you to go pray for that person. I want you to pray for them that they're healed. And we're like, what? Like, well, what if they aren't healed? What if I go over and they're healed? And like, God, you want me to lay hands on this person and pray? I mean, I don't know if you know, but we're in a pandemic. I can't, I can't lay hands on them. And he's like, you're right, it's 2020. Just forget everything I said this whole year and we'll try again in 21. And so we start to rationalize why we shouldn't do it. And we'll think, well, God, that would make me feel very uncomfortable. And I know you don't want me to feel uncomfortable. You love me. You want me to feel comfortable. And so we start to create this idea that obedience is optional. That obedience is only required when it makes us feel comfortable, when it's something that we can agree with God we want to do. God says this. We're like, oh, I agree I will do that. Okay, now I can be obedient. If I don't agree, it's okay that I'm not obedient. And that's not how it really was. And so the echo of our life starts to create that sound that when God speaks, there's an option whether to listen. And that gets passed on to the generations that we touch and the generations to come. And now we have whole generations that think that it is optional when God speaks, if they can do it based on what is popular with man at the time, based on what people might think about that, if that's acceptable to people or if it's not acceptable to people. And we start to see this attitude with King Saul. King Saul was picked and he was anointed to be the first king of, of Israel. He was picked. It was on purpose that God wanted him to be the king over Israel. But King Saul sometimes liked to do things that he wanted to do, regardless of if God had told him to do that. And we see that King Saul was given Samuel as a prophet to hear from God and to speak to him and help him as he was king. And in 1 Samuel 13, we see a moment where Samuel has to leave. King Saul is going to have to take his, his people into battle against the Philistines. Samuel says to King Saul, wait seven days, wait till I come back, 
and then we will do the offering. I will give up the burnt offering to God, and he will give us favor and blessing for the battle. So Samuel leaves, and King Saul is waiting. It's like one day, two days, and things start to kind of go awry. The soldiers start to get scared. Things start to scatter, and King Saul's, you know, starting to feel anxious. He's not sure, but he does. He waits till the seven days, but Samuel is nowhere to be found. And now he's not sure what to do. He, he knows Samuel said wait seven days and for him to arrive to do the burnt offering. But like many times, I think, with us, King Saul decides, you know what? I'm just going to take this into my own hands. The timing wasn't exactly how God said. And, and so I think I'm just going to help this along. I'll, I'll do the offering. Bring the offering to me. I'll, I will give up the burnt offering to God. Pray for favor, and then we'll go into battle, and it'll be fine. So they do. They bring the offering to, to King Saul. He gives it up to, to God. And wouldn't you know who comes walking down the road just about then? Samuel. And King Saul is like, oh, crap. Like, I know I was supposed to wait. There's Samuel. But that's okay. I've been disobedient before. I'll just go explain. He'll have to understand the men were scared. We need to go to battle. I needed to do something. So I did the offering, and it'll be fine. And so from our perspective, we're like, well, King Saul, he kind of tried to wait. He, he kind of tried to be obedient, um, but he wasn't. And so I already know what's going to happen. He did the offering, so now he's going to lose the battle. He's not going to get favor. But what Samuel tells him is a little bit different. And we're going to read his response to King Saul in 1 Samuel 13. We're going to start at verse 13. He said, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So we see that King Saul failed to see that this wasn't just about this one battle. This wasn't about just this one moment in time that God was requiring his obedience that it was about a heart posture. And now, because of his disobedience, the echo of his days was going to be very different. Instead of the generations to come to create the sound of royalty for his kids to be kings and queens and their kids to rule and to reign over the people of Israel, now his kingdom was ended. And God said, now I'm going to find a man with a heart that's truly mine that it's really going to be obedient and in complete surrender to want to do the things that I have asked him to do. And we know shortly after that Samuel found David and he anointed him to be king. And from that, everything in David's life changed and the generations that came were royalty until our king, King Jesus, came forth from David's line. And so it made me question and stop and say, do we understand the requirements of obedience that God has laid out for us? Do we understand our obedience or our lack of obedience and what that sound creates for the generations that come behind us based on the original sound that our life has created? You know, earlier we sang the song, The Blessing, and I think it's pretty rare to find people that don't like the idea of blessing, generational blessing. Um, I would think people frown a little bit more on the generational curse. I know I do. Um, but in Proverbs 20, verse 17, it's laid out pretty easy if you want 
the generational blessing to come on your family. In verse 17, it says, a righteous man who walks in his integrity, in God's integrity, a righteous man who walks in God's integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. See, if you want your children and your children's children and the generations to come to be blessed, you have to walk in God's integrity while you're here. You have to be obedient to him. You know, the, Moses knew when the people of Israel were disobedient, he cried out to God and he said, I know that your steadfast love endures forever, but I also know that the sins of the father carry on to the third and to the fourth generations. And we can think that seems harsh. Like why would kids that aren't even here, kids that were not even yet born, like the psalmist said, why would they be punished for the things that someone does in this generation? And it's pretty simple because the sound that their fathers have created is one that says you can go your own way. You can follow evil and not do good. And then they molded the next generation to create that same sound. And then the generation after that created that own sound. And it leaves it up to the children that come to undo the things that their fathers have done, to repent and come before God and say, we want to be obedient and follow you versus the blessing of the parents that are in complete surrender and say, God, I want everything you have for me. When you speak, I want to be obedient, even if it's not something I want to do. And their children see that. And then their children model that. And then their children's children model that. And that's how, for generation to generation, you hear the sound that no matter what, we will, we will serve King Jesus. That's how that's created. And so we have to ask ourselves, again, what is the echo that our life is creating? Are we being intentional with the people that we can influence, especially the generations below us? And I know I mentioned kids, but there's many generations just in this building, generations older than me, younger than me. What are we doing for the generations below us to raise them in the things that God has asked us to do? Are we telling them of the mighty works that God has done, even in this place, the things that happened way before we were ever here? You know, there's a saying on our sign outside and it says community worship center and in small font underneath it says where Jesus is building his church and you know we get some questions about that and it really has nothing to do with numbers we're not trying to say you know our church is growing in numbers or size it really has nothing to do with that all it's really that we're saying that this is a place where we want to be the church that God created it to be We want to be effective in the kingdom of God to give him honor and glory. We wanna be a church that is worthy of Jesus's return. It says that he's coming back for a church without spot or wrinkle. I know a lot of people like to look around and see all the chaos and they think Jesus is coming back. But I would say we need to look at the church. Is it without spot or wrinkle? Is it really ready to be received as the pure bride that Jesus has asked us to be? And so this morning, the worship team is going to sing through this song. And I'll just ask in these last moments if you could stand with me. And as they sing, and as these words go out, you know, the altars are going to be open if you want to come up and pray at them, if you want to pray in your seat. But I really want us to take this time to search our hearts and be honest with ourselves. When God gave me this word, it was because it was very important that it was something that I needed to hear because I had continually given my no to God about speaking. He had told me several times and I had told him no. And I started to get comfortable thinking that I could live in that disobedience and yet still be close to him. And that's not how God has created it to be. 
And so this morning in these moments when we are at the altar and our chairs, we really want to pray, God, we want clean hands and clean hearts before you. We want the echo of our days to create a sound that generations to come will know of all the good things that you've done, that you've been merciful to us, that you've made ways where there was no way for us, and that above all, we feared you above any man that we ever encountered. And that when you speak to us, we acted, and our obedience echoed through the every generation, that the things that you ask us to do, we had created a heart posture that truly made us positioned for generations.